and welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. Ladies and gentlemen, coming to you uh, twice a month, of course, across our listening land. I'm your host, Christopher Tidmore, coming to you from Historic Magazine Street in New Orleans. But the real guru of this program, the friend of Hunter's, the person taking us through this wonderful year of 1972, is the main host of this program, coming to us from beautiful Maine, Mr. Curtis Robinson. Curtis, welcome, as always. Well, it's good to hear your voice, Christopher. How are things in uh, beautiful, beautiful New Orleans? Hot. In the words, in, in the in the words of one particular movie, hot, damn hot, Africa. <laughs> uh, it is very hot. Yes, 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 yes. It's. Uh, I'll have you know, uh, this is the part of the year where uh, uh, the coast of Maine feels like the state is air conditioned, yeah. except with a nice sea breeze. So, uh, uh, this is one of the few times that I would. Uh, I, I think maybe you should envy my geographic location instead of the other way around. Well, it's kind of interesting that we say this because as as soon as I leave this podcast, I'm on my way to Canada, uh, which is even more temperate than you are in Maine, and then getting in, into the Canadian Rockies and then uh, to one of Hunter's favorite visit places. He loved the town of Banff. He, he went up there a few times. He mentioned it in his writings. Yes. And I'm going to yes, be there. that's true. I'm going to raise a drink to him and then uh, get on a cruise ship and go to Alaska. I'm actually speaking on well, the that's one of those, uh, that's one of those great Rocky Mountain resort towns, isn't it? It's uh, uh, it's just a fantastic it's a fantastic place, and it is on that that loop, so you can see where uh, when I first uh, when I, would like it. When I first went to Banff, I was looking around and I was like, "This is what Aspen looked like in the 1970s." And even though it's yeah, hilarious. that that's what that, that <laughs> when, I, when I lived in Aspen, that's what that's what it, a lot of people say. That I wonder if they, they they you know now now more like oh, this is the way we looked in the 80s. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's what uh, I looked in 1972 back in uh, back in the day. What's interesting in a very Canadian kind of way of regulation to live in Banff or Jasper. I'm going to both. You actually have to um, uh, have worked in the in, in the national park, do something with businesses around the area, or inherited your property from somebody who did. So they weren't able to chase out the million. Uh, you get here. It's basically millionaires now, but the billionaires weren't able to chase out the millionaires. So it does remind me of of Aspen more when Hunter got there as opposed to Aspen. Yes, yes, yes. That, that would that would that would have been an interesting uh, yeah. aspect if they had done that if they had done that in uh, Colorado. Yeah. So um, speaking of so the 1970s, we, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll 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 turn to 1972. This is of course the 50th anniversary of Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. Um, for those who are reaching back in their memory to wonder what it is, uh, this this month. This month is a more famous month than the other chapters of the book that are also based on months because this is one of the months that got uh, collected in the great shark hunt. And I think some of that is because this is the month that uh, McGovern kind of goes from maybe to, oh, yeah, he, uh, he, he's he got that um, because of uh, the, the primary is finally finished. He's got it uh, sort of wrapped up. It's also, by the way, a reminder, and I, I, I had forgotten this, is um, I'm surprised I've not seen much more on this. This is the month that uh, in 1972 that Saul Alinsky died. Really? Yes, Saul Alinsky died 50 years ago, and you would think that that would have made... You know, I remember, uh, for people who don't know, Saul Alinsky um, was... Um, Hunter had one of those, uh, uh, what do they call, the clear things that have words in them, the Chamber of Commerce. People use it to put like... 
famous sayings in and things like yeah, that. It's sort of uh, like a lanyard, but a it's, little, yeah. it's, a, it's a laminate, one of those yeah. laminate things. But he had one of those in his living room that was uh, uh, from Saul Alinsky's uh, Rules for Radicals. That was like the top 10 rules for radicals. And, and the one that he liked the most was personalize and demonize. <laughs> Saul, Alinsky, Saul Alinsky wrote a great book called uh, Rules for Radicals. Uh, for a while, uh, say just when Hillary Clinton was on her rise to run for president, uh, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan, of course, was a famous Ayn Rand mm -hmm. uh, fan. He, he, he insisted his interns read Atlas Shrugged, which he could have done Fountainhead and gotten away with that. But uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, was Chicago-oriented and was Saul Alinsky's. Her, I don't think it was a graduate, her senior thesis was on Saul Alinsky. And, and so she was uh, very much tied to him. So So for a while there, I'm like, I mean, I think both of those people are great thinkers. They're not probably our greatest writers. They're but the Alinsky book, the Alinsky book came under fire. You know, he was picked up by the Tea Party. They they based their strategies on him too, which would have appalled him. He was he was uh, he he always claimed he was never a card carrying communist, which no. he called that's it, a non denial yeah. denial if I ever heard one. He called him a radical. He called himself a radical socialist, but occasionally, as um, one of his disciples points out. He called himself a Leninist. And by the way, the disciple, for those that don't know this, is somebody who does not agree with him on the tactics of it. And that's, of course, Steve Bannion. Steve Bannion, if you listen to his stuff, he says, he not only says, I'm a genuine revolutionary, he quotes rules for radicals all the time. And if you watch what happened on January 6th, it's almost textbook out of Saul Lansky. It's amazing. So. It really it really is. It's... it's uh he the the book if you've not read it rules for radicals it's 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 really a how-to manual as much as anything i mean next to maybe uh anarchist cookbook it's a real how-to to raise some serious hell and i mean it, it's very pragmatic he says you don't say anything uh be flexible say anything get power uh, i came i came to know him because he was uh, growing up in the front lines of the war on poverty he was one of the few people on the left that really was questioning some of the community action programs and things that were the the institutions of the war on poverty because he was he was pushing back. One of the things Hunter and I used to talk about this all the time that that he pushed back on those. You know, he felt too much of the money went to salaries for people and and for what he would call the uh, uh, war on poverty machine. And and where I was, we we certainly all believe that in uh, in Eastern Kentucky. But it was it was he was one of the first writers, and and you know people who seemed to have a, a national platform that said that. But he was very influential for Hunter. And if you look at the way Hunter did politics, trust me, uh, uh, personalize and demonize. Uh, you know his his relationship with with say Richard Nixon was was personalized and and certainly demonized. Of course. I used to tell him that he would say, well, yeah, that was easy. Dixon was a demon. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I, it was before we go, because I, I think Saul Lansky, how he influenced Hunter. What was interesting is I worked for one of Saul Lansky's famous um, sparring partners. And that was Ed Butler, who right after Saul Lansky wrote uh, Rules for Radicals, Ed wrote a book called Revolution is My Profession. 
was one of the big uh, arguments. It was the counter. It was the conservative response. But it was very much a revolutionary document. And he talks about revolutionary times. And he, he, ta- he used to tell me about um, talking to Saul Lansky. And what I loved about it is they agreed on nothing except when they really did. And Saul Lansky was, and that was the point. Saul Lansky was somebody who he said wanted to burn down society. On the other hand, he actually had a, a rather consistently intellectually honest attitude about some of this stuff. And uh, in part of the politics, you know who else was agreeing as a critic from the left? The only guy in politics who was really talking about on the left as a critic of what was going on. This is hearkening not 72, but 68. That these that a lot of the great society programs were becoming too bureaucratic and not money's not getting into it, and he ran for president on it, and that's Gene McCarthy. We all think about the war. That, I guess that's true. true. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. all think about the war. We, yeah, that that that's true. It was also the the the, the other war, the war on poverty, that was yeah. not going well either. Yeah. It was, um, and I would also say along with the uh, the Alinsky quote that that really sort of. Uh, I just did. I, I can't believe I didn't remember that. But uh, along with that, uh, many people will remember. I think it's one of the best things uh, uh, that he has in, in campaign trail is um, it's this scenario. And you'll know, beware. It, it, people will quote it as though he said it happened. He did not. He said he was showing what a brokered convention might be like. And, I, and I've used this in columns 10 times easy. But it's where it's where the guy, the delegate, comes in, and um, they're looking for votes, you know. And uh, uh, you know, it's a hi there, Virgil. The guy says, "My name's J.D. Squain. <laughs> <laughs> I work for Senator Bilbo, and would sure like to count on your vote." And uh, but but he's going to think, well, maybe I can get a. Ju- uh, he's a lawyer, so maybe he can get a judicial appointment out of his vote. And uh, the next thing comes in that that there's this girl that says. Uh, comes to pick him up to join the uh, senator at the crab house. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Shall we have a drink? She nods. Sure, but not here. We'll drive over to North Miami and pick up my girlfriend. Um, you know, many hours, I'll read from it. Many hours later, <laughs> 4.30 a.m., soaking wet, falling into the lobby, begging for help. No wallet, no money, no ID, blood on both hands. And one shoe missing, dragged up to the room by two bellboys, breakfast at noon the de- next day, half sick in the coffee shop, waiting for her Western Union money order from the wife in St. Louis. Very spotty memories from last night. Hi there, Virgil. J.D. Squain. Still grinning. Where were you last night, Virgil? I came by right on the dot, but you weren't in. I got mugged by your girlfriend. Oh, too bad I wanted to nail down that ugly little vote of yours. Ugly? Wait a minute. That girl you sent. We went someplace. Bullshit. You double-crossed me, Virgil. If you weren't on the, if we weren't on the same team, I might be tempted to lean on you. Swain smiles heavily. Tell me, Virgil. What was it you wanted for that vote of yours? A seat on the federal bench? Um... He says, "He says when I got back there, my wallet was gone. And there was blood on my hands. I know. You beat the shit out of her. What? Look at these photographs, Virgil. And so it goes, you know, it, it, it goes downhill from there. Believe it or not. And he's, he says, uh, he says, yeah, we'll take your vote, yours and five others. He gives him a list and says, any of these will do. You know, and I, I just think it was." Uh, I just, I just think it was, it, it's 
probably exactly the way brokered conventions would go oh, yeah. <laughs> if we did that now. People forget, you know, people say, oh, brokered conventions that never would happen. Change 2% of the vote in three, in, in, in two primaries in, uh, in, the, uh, two, in the 2016 Republican presidential contest, and you would have had a brokered convention. Have Barack Obama, have, have Barack Obama lose two caucuses in 20, uh, 2008 um, to one of the minor party candidates, you would have had a brokered convention. These things aren't as impossible as people think, and people are playing for high stakes. They will, yeah, and everybody says, what, 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 what is the line, Curtis? Things are impossible until they happen. <laughs> that, that, that's true. That's true. And, you know, it, so, so June of, June of 72 is when, um, the, the election kind of, uh, takes shape and then, uh, you know, you, you, you pick it up, uh, you know, he, he goes through the summer, but then, but then of course there are, you know, multiple disasters. There's the convention, I, I, I guess, uh, Miami that year. And so you go through the, you go, you go through those things in 72 you know, you you can feel the reshuffling of the cards. It, it's so much like uh, uh, things are now when uh, when you get to the convention. What was it? Uh, uh, Senator Romney said that you just had your sketch and you start to go on. But it's also <laughs> sort of the beginnings of uh, uh, McGovern being more of a, a candidate by committee and all that. It's also, you know, it's interesting. It's also the chapter, it's a famous chapter where... Uh, uh, he says that if, uh, if Hubert Humphrey, uh, there, there's, there was speculation at the time that Hubert Humphrey had, uh, uh, w would do sort of uh, uh, come out for Nixon or do something that crazy. But his hatred of Humphrey was so good. He said, if Humphrey's the nominee, I'll vote for Nixon. So it was, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that, you know, it's just an example that you know. Don't let your nominee run run your uh, faithful over to the other party. <sighs> well, and the funny thing is, McGovern McGovern's the first time you really see an upset in a primary battle. In '68, the Frank for all the talk of uh, Robert Kennedy getting the nomination, he was never going to get it because Johnson was not going to allow it, and the bosses still controlled the convention. 72 is the first time the primaries are really open and what people and whoever wins the primaries and nobody went into primary season thinking McGovern was going to be the candidate. Nobody. Um, and this is, otherwise you wouldn't have had, uh, you know, the, the variety of candidates. It was, he was, it was still a shock to people that McGovern had made it. The, the liberals in the party were like, we did it. How did we do this? Yes, but many people thought he, he would never be the nominee because they felt that if he was the nominee, they'd lose 49 out of 50 states. Amazing how that happened. Um, <laughs> well, well, this is the part. This is another thing that people who uh, – I talk to people all the time about the, about this, and it's very hard to just read uh, a chapter. But, but this is one of my uh, favorite parts where he talks about – I bring this up all the time about uh, – Candidates, people who have been a candidate for city council, it's, it's almost like, you know, uh, country, county lawyers in the Midwest, if you throw them together with some um, crazed, famous attorney from Harvard, uh, 
there's still attorneys talking to attorneys and there's a certain kindred spirit there that that's that's hard to do but one of the things he's uh uh he writes um about being a junkie so there's a fantastic adrenaline high that comes with total involvement in almost any kind of fast-moving political campaign, especially when you're running against big odds and starting to feel like a winner. As far as I know, I am the only journalist covering the 72 presidential campaign who has done any time on the other side of that gap, both as a candidate and as a backroom poll on the local level. And despite all the obvious differences between running on the freak power ticket for Sheriff of Aspen and running as a well-behaved Democrat for President of the United States, the roots are surprisingly similar. And whatever real differences exist are hardly worth talking about compared to the massive, unbridgeable gap between the cranked-up reality of living day after day in the vortex of a rolling campaign and the fiendish rat-bastard tedium <laughs> of covering that same campaign as a journalist from the outside looking in. I I would say we that he always felt that way. He always thought being a candidate really made him a lot better. Uh, you know, he was one of the club. He had he had run for his his name was on the ballot. You know, we've talked about this before, and and this is the passage that probably articulates it better than any. But he writes about it several times throughout his work, and. I've always appreciated that about Hunter because I thought I was a good political journalist before I ran for office. And I, I didn't run for president, I ran for Congress, I ran for state representative. And you know what? Until you realize you're in the arena and, frankly, you're, you're exhausted and you're running this battle, often an uphill battle, you're trying to raise money, but you're more trying to knock on doors and talk to people and get your message out and trying to balance all these things frenetically, you don't understand as a journalist, truly what a tremendous effort it is and how things can change fast until you've been in it. And when I said that, journalists will often say, you know, this, Chris, oh, if you run for office, you can never be a political journalist. You're not unbiased, which I laugh at because tell me any journalist that's completely unbiased about anything. And uh, I think it's the strength of Hunter. I really do. I, I think, he, I think that's sh that sheriff's race, that freak party ticket gave us some great American literature. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. Well, I believe that, I believe you're right about that. I, I believe that uh, it, it, it changed the way he saw not just politicians, but politics in general. The whole, uh, like the, the Alinsky thing we talked about earlier, is that mm -hmm. the politics is the art of controlling your environment. Mm -hmm. I guess now politics is the art of controlling the environment, <laughs> but, but, that's, but that's a different thing. He, you know, and... and the the thing about the seventy two campaign trail book is you really you really see him using that in a way uh, the political part of that in a way that you hadn't seen before. I mean, he had written some political things and uh, uh, his his analysis of the Hell's Angels in that book was really based pol politics. I mean, that book has been cited several times by people who would who would argue that to understand some of the folks in that is to understand some of the core Trump voters. Um, I'm not 100% that sure that's true, but certainly it's a book that, that expands on the idea of class as, as a political tool. And, then, um, and also the June, the June part is, um, it's focused on California, but it, it's one of the first times I've seen where people started talking about, particularly in California, the winner-take-all primary uh, in the Democratic 
primary that year, it became all important, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then that that becomes a thing. But I think one of the key things to Barack Obama's rise is that was the year the Democrats went away from the winner-take-all primary. And, and the thing about the winner-take-all primary is it does eliminate people. It eliminates uh, people very quickly, and literally Democrats went away from the winner-take-all primary because they said very openly, we don't want another McGovern. We don't want another 49-state loss. And this would keep, uh, by proportionality of votes, would keep the insurgent from not winning. And guess what happened? It got well, the insurgent to win. Well, yeah, I, I've, I've read several times. I've never done the math myself, but I've read several times that had it been a winner-take-all primary in the Democratic Party that, that uh, Secretary Clinton would have won because she won all those uh, – she won a lot of the big early states, but uh, Barack Obama could hang around, and thus, as he started to mount his – a comeback of sorts, if you will, uh, it, ga- it gave him running room that he would not have had. And, and God knows that in order to raise money for that kind of thing, you have to be viable. So suddenly, you know, he could raise money because he remained, uh, I imagine, at first theoretically viable. And another thing I think about Obama in terms of, I think when Bill Clinton ran first, his first race, he wasn't expected to win that. I mean, he was, uh, you know, famously, I think the New York Times got his, the the state of which he was governor wrong in his announcement story. So, you know, he wasn't supposed to win that, but he knew that it would be uh, preparation for running later. And I think perhaps... A lot of people in the Obama camp thought that too, but then, you know, madness starts to become reality, and and then and they started really picking up things, and, and I think we just saw, you know, a, a truly gifted politician. Uh, but you are right; it, it did bring uh, it did bring down the front runner, which was not the intent well, of that process. And in fact, um, Clinton's strategist in that race was it Mark Salter? I forget who that was ended up publishing this thing about how they're going to win, and it was still based on the winner-take-all, and somebody pointed out and said, these aren't the rules anymore. And they had drafted this $150 million strategy and published it and said, this is how we're getting, this is how we're getting the delegates. And somebody, one of the journalists said, uh, I'm sorry, the rules aren't this anymore. It doesn't work that way. And he, and he, and and Salter, I guess it was Salter, it was Mark, comes out and says, Oh, don't worry. She's going to win it early in the thing. It's not going to be a problem. And that's David Axelrod's genius. David Axelrod could count, and he figured out something. <laughs> he he figured out two things that uh, that they hadn't done. One was that the Clinton uh, machine was based on big primaries and trying to do these knockout votes. And that's true if you have a winner-take-all primary. But he figured out something that um, was a lot of – you still had a lot of caucuses in, uh, in the Democratic Party, and they have fewer and fewer today – and you could go to small Republican states and have caucuses and come away with almost the same number of delegates. Less, but, you know, still competitive. And that's how he stayed alive, too. It was he, he could get people would, you know, go through snowstorms, quite literally, for Barack Obama. They wouldn't do that so much for Hillary Clinton in those days. And so oh, I was I was in I was in Denver that uh, nomination uh, and it was uh, you want to talk about a rock star. Uh, it was it was a it was a phenomenal uh, presence. It was, uh, you know, uh, 
it was it was all happening finally an outsider right and he was going to put all the bakers in jail and we were going to have universal health care and he was going to close guantanamo and i could give you a list but nonetheless nonetheless he you know you begin to see some of that as early as 72 where they start to talk about well you know walter cronkite that's uh uh actually asked humphrey if he had any objections and uh um he said, uh, uh, what was that? Humphrey said it, it, it would make him a spoil sport. I mean, in 72, people were still saying spoil sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, well, and I, you know, one thing I can maybe, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but um, so I studied briefly under George McGovern. He was a professor of mine. And uh, I interviewed him a couple times, still have interviews with him. You know, when I was on the radio show, you know, as a favor, he'd come on. Uh, a very noted interview the, the day the National World War II Museum, which was then the D-Day Museum, came in. And he told about a famous in, uh, interview that happened after the presidential race in Germany where, you know, some guy asked him, "You're Senator McGovern, you're a famous pacifist. Um, what would, you know, or do you regret all the bombs that you dropped on Germany? And he said, absolutely not, not one. And then he paused for a second. He said, you know, I do regret one bomb I dropped guy looks at him in this Bavarian television station and says, one? He said, yeah, I'm a farmer from South Dakota. And, and one time I was returning to base and I had one bomb. You have to drop the bomb but you can't land. And I dropped the bomb thinking it was an open field and it landed on this barn and blew up the barn. And I've thought about that poor farmer in the middle of winter losing his mom. He says, that's it? Yeah, that's, that's it. That's all. Well, as he's getting ready to leave the station, somebody runs after him, Senator, Senator, that farmer's on the phone whose barn you blew up. And uh, he wants to talk to you. McGovern tells me the story sheepishly. Uh, hello, hello. And he says, Senator, it was my barn you blew up, and if you, uh, if you it, got, it got rid of that bastard Hitler one day earlier, you could have blown it up again. And uh, the reason I tell that story, besides the humor of it... That's a great story. Yeah, it's, and McGovern told me the story several times. I got it on air. He told it to me once. But because George McGovern ran as this absolute pacifist, and he certainly wanted to get us into Vietnam. But I once asked him, how are you going to do it? And he said, oh, it's simple. Um, we, we, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stop the, the full-scale uh, bombing, but we're going to retreat to Arsenal cities while we negotiate the end of the war. Which is exactly what Richard Nixon did. True. Yeah. It yeah. really wouldn't have been that big a change in strategy. It literally was the same policy. Mm. <laughs> so. Well, so 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 the secret. So Nixon's secret plan in the war was essentially McGovern. McGovern would have done about the same thing. Pretty much. That was the secret plan to end a war. It was. It was withdraw to the cities, Vietnamize the war, and go to the negotiating table. Well, also, uh, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's such a. It's a uh, uh, seventy-two. By the way, was also uh, one of the years that Dick Gregory, uh, for those who have seen the. Uh, recent and wonderful HBO documentary on Dick Gregory. Uh, that was one of the years he, and, and Hunter says in the, and I'd forgotten this as well. He, he says in there that he voted for Dick Gregory in 68. <laughs> so, so, so there, there's, there's that to, to uh, remember on it. That, that's it. You know, he had several votes that are, are, it's like in here when he says in this chapter, when he talks about he would, if Humphrey's the nominee, he would vote for Nixon. I, I, I question if he would have gone through with that promise, but uh, there, there's a lot of things that where he talks about 
this is one of the places, but I mean, several times he talks about the the problem of you know just voting, just being placed where you have to vote for someone you don't want to vote for, uh, you know, because they're not the other person. But then, then when uh, you know when he sort of fell out with the Clinton administration in the nineties, one of the things he said is that the reason he supported Clinton was very much that. He was against George Bush. And I always, I always tried to pitch him on that. I know you've heard this a thousand times where I say, you know, primaries are about voting for someone, but general elections are about voting against someone. And he, he, he would never quite buy into it, although he would give me a, a, a nudging nod here and there about that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the truth. I think most people, the whole reason why we're so afraid of third parties or fourth party candidates in America is because our psychology is built in that. It's voting against somebody. Um, about what made Obama's election interesting to me was it was one of the few times where the, the candidate appeal was voting for someone because it was, yeah, they could attack Sarah Palin and, and with a lot to attack, but nobody was really afraid of John McCain becoming president on the left. You know, it's not, they didn't think it was. So it was one of the few times where it was kind of voting. Every other election I ever remember was don't have the other guy in. What what could happen if the other guy's in? You know, so well, that's a good that's a good point. Or or maybe they hadn't read Alinsky, so they didn't know how to personalize and demonize. <laughs> uh, a lot of people. I, 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 again, I say the words <laughs> David Axelrod. Smartest. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, I that's do. true. We we have established can also count. Yes. So, so it's a, yes, yes, yes. yes we, a, we have those things. So I guess we're at the part of. Um, I think we're we're at at the part of the 72 campaign that is of interest to those of us who would consider ourselves, if not po political junkies, then at least uh, 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 close to it. But I think we're moving into the part that, that starts to be history now. We're yeah. going to the convention. Um, I'm not reading ahead, but I do recall that certain uh, vice presidential choices were made and uh, did not particularly go well. And then, uh, you know, I'm looking. What I a shock, an electric shock. Now. Anyway. Well, it, it's it's the part of history that pops up. You know, Gary Hart starts to take mm -hmm. a, uh, people will remember that Gary Hart, the senator, the future senator from Colorado and presidential candidate himself of monkey business fame. Uh, he, he starts to become a more prominent person after this, I, I think. So we're. We're at the part now that begins the chapters of history that people will most remember. And I, I, I point out, people are like, well, McGovern lost 49 states. Not only was Gary Hart, as campaign manager, his career was created, but if you look at the people that got into politics because of the McGovern, really got into politics on a massive level, a young couple, Bill and Hillary Clinton, are organizing in the South. You get all this, all the major players in politics in the nineteen, uh, the end, the beginning of the nineteen nineties, came out of the McGovern campaign, some way, somehow. That generation was born on this campaign. People like to say, um, it, 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 the the cons Reagan conservative revolution actually started in um, nineteen sixty four with Barry Goldwater, because everybody who worked for Goldwater may have lost an election but won the war. Well, that's true to some extent in the McGovern campaign. He lost the election, but 
it created pretty much the Democratic ascendancy in the 90s out of it. So, Well, you know, with the passing of the uh, uh, longtime sheriff of Pitkin County, Bob Broadus, one of, one of the parts of his legacy is that when— uh, and you can see it in some of the videos of the, of the time, some of the uh, videos taken of Hunter's run for sheriff. You can see a very, very young Bob Broadus in the audience, and, and that's what inspired Bob to, to service. And, of course, he was a deputy then. He, he became a deputy for eight years and then ran for sheriff. And he was always an example of, uh, you know, Hunter lost the sheriff's race, but but won the next 30 years. So he won. He very much won the war. And it's interesting you make the same point with McGovern because the number of people who came into Aspen area politics, um, his campaign manager, a uh, gentleman, uh, Ed Bastion, Ed Bastion would go on to become the founder of Aspen.com. Uh, very, very uh, influential Aspen local over many, many years out in California. Now, hi, Ed, if you're listening. And then... Um, so, so that's that's an interesting point because one of the things everyone in Pitkin County felt is that it wasn't just Hunter, Hunter and his, his companions, sort of the growth control, uh, more environmental uh, oriented. Not necessarily uh, people like there like to say, well, it was the hippies, but it wasn't really the hippies. They were uh, they were hip they they were hippie adjacent to be sure. But they they really they made structural changes. They didn't they they were not interested, and Hunter was not interested in uh, dramatic gestures. He wanted to win, and he wanted uh, uh, to control his environment. Well, and he did. He did one, for a long time. One of the things McGovern kind of pointed out to me once, and it was in a class. Um, so I was taking a class from him. He was, was talking. I talked to him about it before. They said to the hippies that support McGovern. He said honestly. It really wasn't that level of support. And, and people are like, wait, wait, you're George McGovern. This is the anti-war. He said, when did the draft end? He said, there was a proportional decline in war protest, and that's the minute the, the draft numbers went really up, which had happened under Nixon. And he said, one that that kind of a race, people were counterculture and hippies as long as it was they were in danger of getting drafted. And the minute they weren't, Suddenly, the counterculture movement was, and we moved into something very different. And if you look at the people who worked in that campaign, they were, it wasn't a hippie campaign. It was actually very much, it was sort of get clean for Gene uh, on steroids because the people who were there were clean beforehand. They were trying to change the world, not so much change enough to win an election. It's, it's, well, that's it, true. That, that, yeah. that was one of the great disappointments that Hunter had. He said, you yeah, know, we thought at the end, we thought, well, the youth vote. Because 72, of course, was the first year that 18-year-olds could vote. And it was millions of voters, and no one really knew what they would do. And one of the reasons Hunter got access is that people reminded people of bloggers in later years where it's like they, they were supposed to have access to this audience that was hard to reach. And it was Rolling Stone was, all right, that's a youth magazine. That's what they're reading. So apparently this is the reporter they send us. And we, you know, so he got access he would not have gotten if it hadn't been for that, that time frame. And, you know, and probably, but as he said, you know, we've, you know in, in more cynical moments, you might say we're, we're the youth vote is the future and always will be. <laughs> oh, that's why everybody wants the, 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 that's the argument of lowering the voting age to 16, because it'll energize people. And 
young people skip going to beer bust when they have a reason to vote. And when they don't have a reason to vote, they turn out as young people. On that note, um, we, we, we've now embarked into the end of history. Give us, <laughs> give us, a, give us a, a look at what uh, we're looking at coming up in July in uh, Fear and Loathing 1972 in the campaign trail. I, I, I think we're, 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 going to, uh, we're, we're going to the convention. We're going to come out of the convention. We're going to see uh, the things people remember of uh, – the vice presidential nominee is very controversial. And it also, I think, took a lot of the early momentum. They said that's the first big decision a president or a nominee makes is their vice presidential pick. And if you think about it, if you think about uh, everybody, you think about Sarah Palin, you think about mm-hmm. Bush, you, you just think about that and you're like, um, if that's a good decision, it goes well for you. I mean, uh, um, so... So you go from there. I mean, I, I just remember when Obama picked uh, Joe Biden. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Chris Matthews that said, "Yeah, he just he just put the apostrophe in Obama." You know, for for in Boston. You know, so it was. Uh, it is an important pick, and he just he screws that up, and then we then we move into the um, grueling campaign, and of course uh, the backdrop of that is is Watergate. So the Watergate hearings are going on, although, you know, of course, uh, people, it had such a small effect on it that people forget it was going on during the, um, during that. And, and, and for people who are watching what, you know, the January, as we're taping this, the January 6th hearings are on and, and everybody from everybody who remembers how riveted the country was, is wondering if they're going to get the Watergate effect with those hearings. And, and, uh, my, my actual thought is I, I suspect not. Because, you know, there were three networks then and, uh, you know, no HBO on demand. There's there's a lot more distraction. But I'd point out, I actually see a parallel. The Watergate hearings did not affect the Nixon administration as long as there was someone who was considered less palatable. Um, And that's what McGovern ultimately was. The question is, I mean, I point out to people we've had some incredibly hard-hitting. I mean, I swear to God, if you're a Democrat in, um, in, in, in the state of Wyoming and you're not temporarily registering for a Republican to vote for Liz Cheney, you probably missed the whole opportunity, one of the great political speeches of all time. But the, the point I'm getting at all in all this is Donald Trump's polls have gone up. Joe Biden's gone down since we had the January 6th hearing. And what else is going on? Inflation. A lot of the situations we've got, we've got a war in a far-off country. We're supplying, which we, we're supplying the forces. And there are parallels today to everything that was going on in 1972. So. That's true. That's true. And and what I'm beginning to believe is that that there are almost always parallels if, if you look for them. One of the things that... Uh, I, I tell everyone, they say, well, what's it like to, to look at 72? I'm like, it's it's horrible. It, the parallels are horrible. Uh, but it's also vaguely reassuring. I mean, you know, they were worried about the end of democracy with, with Nixon reelected. And, and we look at uh, similar concerns with democracy now. And, and that was 50 years ago. So at least I come away every now and then thinking maybe it's a little more resilient than I thought it was three months ago, which is which is reassuring. Mm. 
Um, democracy is the worst form of government ever conceived by man, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. <laughs> I don't know who that's a quote from, but, but, but it's a, yeah, we should, we should probably just put that on the end of all of the, all of these podcasts. Um, I would have loved one, one day I'm going to write a, what if alternate history story of Winston Churchill, some time traveling, not Winston Churchill, we remember in the war, or, or certainly afterwards, that would have overlapped at all with Hunter. But the Winston Churchill in his fifties, meeting Hunter Thompson in his fifties, and uh, um, the the two philosophic alcoholics um, uh, uh, who made their living by their pen and were known as kind of the voices of their generations, which he was. I mean, everybody I don't know about. It. I think al- alcoholic might be a little <laughs> sharp. I think uh, alcohol enthusiast would be uh, more, perhaps more accurate. But yes, I take I take your point. Well, no, I, 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 I point out it, Churchill. Churchill who drank. Started his day with a Johnny Walker scotch and ended it with a brandy and drank consistently. He never lost his control all day. And he would say, as he said, can you imagine Hunter Thompson making this statement? I've taken a lot more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. Oh, yeah, I think he would. Although although Hunter, Hunter and I had a rule. Uh, he had a rule. He said, Curtis, you can, you, you can never blame the drink. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, all right. If if historically you cannot blame the drink, then you can't. We got to stop crediting the drink. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I, I tried. I want to calculate for Hunter before we end in years from now into this podcast. Um, how many bottles of of uh, bourbon or whatever he actually drank in a lifetime? Because somebody just came out of calculation that Churchill drank forty two thousand bottles of champagne. In his life, and uh, yeah, 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 but 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 to be fair, a lot of those were his lunch champagne, which were the small bottles. Have you ever seen a bottle of Paul Roger? They ain't small. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I, I took my best shot. I took right. my best shot. But that's what—that's where we're headed in. Uh, uh, the the we're, we're headed into a time of fixers and campaigns and bloodlust is where we're headed now. And I, and uh, you know, and then. You know, by September, um, you know, it's fear and loathing at the White House press plane and stuff like that, uh, uh, you know. Uh, on, on that perfect note, uh, the fear and loathing of the press and the press's loathing of itself is the perfect transition for fear and loathing on the campaign trail in 1972. As always, our host, Curtis Robinson, you've done an outstanding job of elucidating this comparison in 50 years of history, and we're proud oh, of it's a great, It's great fun. It's great fun to time travel. <laughs> on that note, folks, we'll be back with this next month, and, um, of course, in, in the interim, we'll have another podcast. If you haven't heard our last one about the dear departed sheriff, it's worth listening to. It explains a lot about Hunter and a, and a particular time in Aspen history, so check that out. And Curtis, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks yet again. <laughs>